Hello, and welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. I'm uh, Thomas Nygren from the fansite lfcsv.se from Sweden. Hey glad to be on. My name is Dylan Arvella, and I'll be talking about Australia and Manchester United. Yeah, uh, I'm Jake, Newcastle fan, coming back to the podcast for the first time in a few weeks. I'll be representing Newcastle, of course, and England, I write for EPL Index and the Boot Room. All right, thanks so much for joining us, guys. Uh, before we get into individual topics, which there will be a lot of, because we're going to talk both club and country, as uh, you may have noticed by how the guests introduced themselves today, uh, we will start with a Premier League topic, though, um, which is news that came middle of the week, but obviously this is the first time I'm recording since then. Both Sam Allardyce and Alan Parr do get jobs again in the Premier League, um, having done little other than just keeping their previous clubs up. Uh, What do you think of these hires, and who do you think will be more successful come the end of the season? Well, it seems to be a bit of a case of uh, deja vu all over again. You look at Everton, they're now 10th in the table, so the job for Sam Allardyce is basically over. Um, It would have been really interesting to see him given, given a longer contract to see if he could actually... Uh, do something interesting and play a bit more of a um, uh, attacking style, perhaps, but that doesn't seem to be be very likely. Pardew, I, I really don't rate him as a manager. He's a bit of a busted up, bust, busted ass in that sort of sense. Um, West Brom, they probably would have stayed up with Pulis, um, and I don't know if Pardew plays uh, a style of football that's much better than Pulis. So it seems seems a a bit of an odd move. Yeah, I think it was um, two quite a boring choices, to say the least, because you, we've seen Allardyce and uh, we've seen Podio a few years now, and they don't bring anything exciting to the game. They probably will stay up, both teams, mainly because they have good enough squads to do so, but um, they won't bring anything new. And for Everton's, it's, to Everton, it's almost like they are lowering their expectations. They were signing players to compete higher up in the in the table and now with that with that advice it probably end around 10th or 11th so it would have been more interesting to see them if they, they had uh, gotten Marco Silva for example it would be more interesting to see them and um, in Sweden we talk a lot about a coach called uh, Graham Potter I'm, I'm not sure if you've heard his name but, uh, but yeah actually when we had our West Brom guest on he mentioned him yeah, because he's, I think he's the only English coach left in the European competitions. And uh, he's um, almost like a saint in Östersund, uh, who, who is uh, qualified for the next round in the Europa League. And a couple of years ago, they, was, they were in the third division here in Sweden. So hopefully we'll see him in the Premier League in a few years, because uh, I think English football needs to get... Uh, Coaches like Pardew and Allardyce and Moyes and Pulis out and the new names in. Hmm. I definitely agree with that. Jake, uh, a little bit uh, altering this for you. How is it that the British media constantly thinks young British managers need to be given a chance, but then is always fine with older English managers who have failed to do very much of anything uh, when they get hired? I don't think there's many good young English managers out there, Kev, and that is why mm. they're not getting given a chance because they don't exist. They're not out there. You see Ryan Giggs, he was meant to be wanting to go into coaching. He literally has done nothing to do to help his cause in that. He's not 
shown any interest in any jobs, thinks he's above his pay grade, thinks he should have a Premier League job. He's done absolutely nothing. So, like, it, all the sort of British, young British, or let's talk about the uh, sort of British coaches coming out of the game, retiring as players. They're not interested in going down and doing their apprenticeships and learning the ropes as a manager in the lower leagues or even even on maybe the support staff and uh, in a Premier League club. I know Giggs did it a little bit I, and I know Gerard started it now at Liverpool, but they don't seem that interested. And I don't think there's a great desire for a lot of them to be managers. I think I think I don't think that's what English players coming out of the game really want to do. I think they want to be pundits. I don't I just don't think there's an interest in it. Gary Neville tried. He's another great example. He got given a job just because he was friends with the owner of Valencia, he, he did nothing to, to, to show that he, he could be a manager and it's completely different being a pundit and a manager. You know, I just don't think they're out there. And I'm I'm not that against either of these appointments. I think they both make a lot of sense. And I know uh, Dylan mentioned that the party doesn't play that much, uh, a style much better than Pulis, but he, he does. He, he does try and play attacking football. I know... I mean, I, I watched Pardew team at Newcastle for a good, I don't know, too long. Too long, he was here too long. And I don't think he's a great manager, but he's fine. He's normally fine for about 12 months. He, he's, he'll make improvements there. He'll get them playing a better style. He likes to go down the wings, play quick counter-attacking uh, football, passing out. Johan Kabay uh, got signed twice by him. He's a very good footballer. He's not a, a hoofball player by any sense of the imagination. And he, 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 at Newcastle, we had to, but after when we finished fifth, you know, we played some good football. We we rode our luck a lot i'm not saying he's a great tactician but he's he's, he's fine i think he's he's serviceable as a premier league coach and i don't think there's anything wrong with that and with everton i think they're just in a weird situation there's nobody out there they try to get out of manchester allardyce is obviously not their first choice they, they went for marco silva they probably went for a few other people as well because it took them ages to make this appointment and the fact that it took so long i just think they just wanted to get something done because Answorth was doing nothing. They needed to get someone in there, and uh, Allardyce is the best of a, a bad lot of options. So it's, I don't think he's going to be there this time next year. It's, it's just a short term. I, I just I didn't yeah, think he was a bad appointment. Contract. He, he won't even do those eighteen months, and I think for him it's such an easier, such an easy job. He's probably going to get a bonus for keeping them up, even though they've got no chance of going down. He's just going to come in, have a nice time, get a lot of money, and leave. It's like he's not going to be here in twelve months. Pardew probably won't be there in twelve months because he'll probably have a he'll probably have a good second half of the season, start next season okay, then go off the boil. Like it's, I don't think. That, I, I agree there should be some better options, but you see some uh, clubs, Crystal Palace went for De Boer, that was a complete failure like if you go for it's nice to go to other options if, if you've done your research and you think they're the good ones for you but these clubs didn't expect to be making managerial changes and and they've just gone for safe safe choices i don't think there's anything wrong with it yeah it kind of feels like maybe they're just protecting their money but i think the big takeaway from the segment is to jake's point west brom are going to sign kabai in january <laughs> up next uh, we're going to tilt things a little bit closer uh to the world cup setting um obviously the world cup draw was here on friday they're perfectly willing to lead in with this. There is no group of death. Way too many coverages of the World Cup I've already seen are trying to force one. There is not one, at least not to my eyes. Uh, but I do want to quickly go through and ask uh, about each of these groups. Which ones do you think are the hardest for starters? As you say, there are no really group of death. But I think that um, Group D will be interesting to watch because we know that Argentina is a good team. Croatia, really good team. And Iceland... We saw in the last European Championships what they can do. And um, I don't know a lot about how good Nigeria are nowadays, but I've heard that they're probably the best team from the African uh, conference. So I would say that Group D might be the hardest. 
Um, I retweeted a graphic from Nick Harris, uh, which shows the average ranking of each group, which I believe is, in some ways, in some ways, it goes a long way in answering uh, the question of which is the hardest and which is the easiest group. In Group A, with Russia, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Uruguay, there's an average ranking of 45th, and I guess you could argue that this is the easiest group, but you could also argue that this is the group that anyone could finish top. Uh, comparatively, uh, Group G with Belgium, Panama, Tunisia, and England—that's a group where you, you're probably the top two teams are almost guaranteed to finish in the uh, top two positions. And you could argue the same with Group B, which has uh, is the one with Portugal and Spain. In it. Oh, the hardest one is the one that England drinks. We're not going to win any of those games. <laughs> I mean, we, we are we are god that we are awful in tournaments. And any, the thought of Panama—they've got three times the population of Iceland. I mean, that is scary, scary to me. But uh, it's, it, seriously, I think uh, looking at the groups, I've not really looked at them that closely. But the one that Brazil was in caught my eye a little bit. I think Switzerland are quite a good team, uh, a lot better than they were at the Euros. They've definitely come on a lot since then. Costa Rica did well at the last World Cup, and mm-hmm. Serbia. I've always been that country that should have been doing a lot better than they've ever done. And now they seem to have clicked a bit. They've got some good players. A lot of them play the Premier League. Uh, Tadic and, and Mitrovic and uh, Matic. You know, they've got some really good players in that squad. So I think that's going to be an interesting one. I think Brazil should, will probably win that group. But out of the other three, it could be really, really interesting to see who else goes through. Um, but yeah, there's not a lot of there's not there's not a lot of intrigue, but I'm sure it will all get built in the media. We'll all we'll all be fed the lines of which ones, are the, which teams are sort of the hipsters' choice and those sorts of ones to watch out for. But I think it's it's it's, it's there's an interesting group of teams this 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 uh, this round. And even in the group stage, like like uh, Dylan said, you've got England and Belgium and Portugal and Spain together. At least there's like a couple of big, really big matches to to look forward to in those. Mm. Yeah, I think one of the reasons we don't have a quote unquote group of death is the amount of big names well-recognized countries that aren't at this tournament because if you throw in italy into any of these or a netherlands or a, a chile or a ghana or any of those all of a sudden one of these groups would look um, more imposing at least on paper but as you say there could be a lot of really interesting matches that we don't know about yet uh dylan said that statistically uh, group a is going to be the easiest uh thomas and jake would you agree with that well i'm not sure i think um, uruguay has a good team and i think egypt will be a hard hard team to play because we have seen what Salah can do and uh, if they have a good defense it won't be easy to break down Egypt as well and they will be good on the counter-attack so and I'm not sure that Russia is very good as well so maybe it's the weakest group but I won't say it's the easiest group I don't think that Russia will come through to the next round yeah I, I, I think it's I don't know. There's not one standout team. I think. I think that that's what Dylan was saying. There was not one team that should be that's going to wrap home and win all those games. So in that sense, it's going to be not the easiest, but like open, the most interesting maybe in terms of results. I think you can go through the rest of them and pick two teams to go through, and I'm not convinced you could do that in Group A. Yeah, just to just to clarify the point on Group A, that was more that anyone in that group, if they have a bit of luck, could could finish top. Uruguay are probably the favourites. However, uh, Saudi Arabia are very competitive in Asia. Egypt have been competitive, not in a World Cup sense, but in an African uh, Cup of Nations sense for, for, for decades. Um, and Russia, they're the host. They're actually the, um, I think they're the lowest ranked nation at the tournament, which is interesting. And I'm pretty sure they'll be the only side with um, uh, their full squad will be domestically based. So it'll be very interesting in that sense. And I also just want to add, 
I think Thomas mentioned a bit earlier, Group D. I think that's going to be really interesting. Croatia, they're a great team to watch. Uh, Luka Modric is a lovely player to watch for Real Madrid, but I think he's a, he, he steps up a level for Croatia. I want to see how Iceland fare uh, after their success at the Euros. And I think Nigeria, they probably have their best squad in over a decade. Plenty of talent in that. And I think the big fish in this group is obviously Argentina, but they're riddled with issues. And if it wasn't for Lionel Messi in that final game, they wouldn't be at this tournament. Uh, they've got plenty of problems, especially at the back. And you never know. I can actually see them being the biggest casualty in the group stage. All right. Uh, well, it'll definitely be interesting uh, to see how this World Cup pans out. Obviously, we still have plenty of months ahead of us to to look at it and talk about it. Um, but definitely worth discussing now that the groups have been announced. All right. Now we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll get into topics uh, about club and country for each of our guests. Awesome. All right. Now we're going to head into topics for each of our guests. Uh, Thomas, we're going to lead in with you. And with everybody, we're going to be kind of doing split duty. We'll do one question about the club, one question about the country. Um, so with Liverpool, uh, it's been very interesting seeing this season how all of the attacking pieces have basically had their moment to shine with Salah, I suppose, being the overarching uh, performer. But you have had Mane look like he's been the focal point of the attack. Obviously, in the match on Saturday, Coutinho had a masterclass. Do you think that's what's so important and vital about this Liverpool attack is that it can kind of come from anywhere at any moment? Yeah, I think that is a very important part of the squad right now because the past years we have been relying on one or two players to score. Was um, when we had uh, Gerard and Torres, they needed to be good, and when we had Suarez, he needed to be good. Now we can uh, rest the player like Salah and still beat Stoke, and we can uh, rest Mane and still beat Brighton. So the width of uh, our attack is very important, and uh, I think that uh, the most important player right now is Roberto Firmino because uh, he's got uh, abilities that the other attackers doesn't have. So. It's always when uh, when he's playing at his best that the others score. And he's, he didn't start against Chelsea. And that's the only time the past month that we only scored one goal. So um, it's really interesting to see the way that uh, Klopp has started to get this attacker's tick. Because um, I don't really like the way that he played the Coutinho at the start of the season in the midfield. Now he's further up in the pitch and uh, closer to the goal. And we saw yesterday what that, that means for uh, Liverpool. So... Now we have about four or five players who are just, uh, dangerous. And um, that's good coming forward because in December we have a lot of games coming up and we can't play them every time. So now we can rest Mania when he's a bit injured and we can rest Coutinho when he's tired and we don't have to start Salah every game. So uh, hopefully they will be uh, fit coming in uh, February and March when everything is starting to getting closer to the end. Mm, that's a really interesting uh, point on kind of the the depth preventing injury instead of the depth being needed after an injury. Um, I think Manchester City have that as well this season, um, where at times they dip if De Bruyne got hurt or if Aguero got hurt, but now you just have Jesus and Silva and Bernardo, if you need him, all willing to step in. Uh, also, you touched on um, Firmino there. He's already played four positions for you this season. Uh, curious as to where you think he can be the most effective, which, as you mentioned, uh, he is very important to your play style because he does bring something else to the table. Yeah, I think he's uh, the best when he starts in the middle of the three uh, at the top because yeah, I almost would say that he's our best defensive player as well because he's the first guy into the press and um, 
lot yesterday he won a lot of balls at the top of the game. So we didn't need to have Vinaldum and Emrechan do as a lot do so much defense as uh, I was afraid of beforehand. So I want him to play in the middle at top. Uh, not uh, out on the left side as we started him, I think it was uh, a couple of weeks ago, because he's at his best when he plays in the middle and he has Mane, Salah or uh, Coutinho beside him. Yeah, he, he can definitely be effective for you there. And uh, for fantasy owners, he is listed as a forward, so that's also where you kind of want him to um, <laughs> getting away from that. And uh, into a bit of World Cup news, uh, obviously, Sweden have qualified for the World Cup, which is something that <laughs> you and I discussed at the end of the last Euros. And you were saying you weren't particularly optimistic, especially with Zlatan leaving. Lo and behold, uh, you do end up qualifying. Just curious as to uh, what changed so much in between then and now, both in your perception and kind of in the reality of how Sweden plays as a team. Yeah, we we changed uh, the coach after the last qualifications. And um, it's been a very very good change because if you look at your squad right now there are there aren't very good players in the in our attackers that started against Italy is Marcus Berg who plays for Al Ain in Saudi Arabia and we have Ola Toivonen who's a substitute in Toulouse and the substitute who came on against Italy was Isaac Kisetelin who plays for Vasland Beveren in Belgium our central midfielders plays for Hull City and Seattle Sounders so there aren't very good players, but when they come together as a team, something happens. And uh, I think Sweden is a very tough side to play because uh, they are good in, good defense and uh, work hard together. And um, we proved that when we beat France in the qualifications, we beat Italy in the qualifications, and uh, we were ahead of uh, the Netherlands in the group. So something has happened in Sweden. And I think uh, a lot of players know, know what to do on the pitch and they work hard together and um, Jan Andersson who is the coach of the team is of course a very important part of that so it will be interesting to see in the World Cup if we can if we can build on that because um, we won't be favorites in uh, maybe in the first game against South Korea but apart from that it's um, we can defend and try to counter attack and score some goals so um, it was it was fun to watch Sweden again it's been uh, quite boring to watch them the past couple of years because everything has been built around Zlatan and it should be because he was he was a very good player for us but uh, the other 10 were just like standing by and watching now there are uh, 11 11 hard-working players on the pitch and that's more fun to watch how do you rate your chances of getting out obviously Germany are the big dogs in your group um, but it feels like Mexico and Korea could be gotten at it if you call them on the right day yeah, I think we have a decent shot. It's um, it could have been an easier group, but it could definitely be a harder group as well. So um, of course Germany will win the group, and I think we we won't stand much of a chance against them. But again, I think it will be uh, the game against Mexico that is most important because South Korea. I think we can have a very good shot to beat, and um, I haven't seen Mexico very much since the last World Cup, so I don't know how good they are, but. And I've seen Javier Hernandez in West Ham, and I think that uh, Dos Santos still plays. So they have a few good players. But um, if we have a good day, then I think we can beat them. And to be in the 
next round will be a success for for this team who is really two years ahead of it because it was the next European Championship that was the goal when Janne uh, Andersson signed. And this this champ- championship is almost like a bonus for this team. All right, now coming to you, uh, Dylan, we're going to start off with Manchester United. And I want to start, uh, there, there are some negatives you could take at the moment with United, but I want to go with a positive, which is uh, Jesse Lingard, who has gotten two consecutive starts, three goals and one assist in them. Uh, do you think that now that he's been given a chance for minutes, he could continue to get them? Like, has he earned his place in the starting eleven, Or do you think that come January or come next summer, there will just be another high-profile player in to replace him? Look, I, I really like Jesse Lingard, um, and he's a fan favorite of the club because he's come through the academy and he scored some pretty big goals, including an, FF, uh, an FA Cup winner. Uh, he definitely has some deficiencies, um, but I think he makes up for that with his pace, his energy. And I think what Jose Mourinho really likes is, is his tactical discipline to fulfill a role. And I think um, that's why he's come in for Henrik Mkhitaryan because I think that he's able to... He's able to fit a style of play that Mourinho is trying to implement in the side. And I think if he's able to do that, as you've seen with um, Fellaini, Mourinho will really value that. So I think that even though he's not one of United's, he isn't technically in United's uh, best 11, um, he's definitely got a, a, a place in this squad. Yeah, do you think his best chance in would be on that right side, though, especially while McTarian kind of struggles over there? Well, he's he's very capable of playing out, out wide. If you if you are to put him on a wing, he's probably better out out on the right. But I'm pretty sure his favourite position is uh, in behind the striker, which I think um, he's he's proven to do a really good job in there as well. But for in terms of getting minutes, out on the right side is is most likely the uh, most likely avenue for him to get minutes for United. Interesting. Uh, on to uh, the international stage, Australia obviously have also qualified uh, for the World Cup. But uh, changed manager after doing so? Very curious to hear uh, what kind of the background was on why your manager got uh, got the sack. Uh, well, he didn't get the sack. He actually um, resigned. So I'll, I'll go back a bit. The rumor that Ange Postacoglu, the, the former Australian manager, would the former Australian manager, he would leave the post, came after the Syria playoff. So we had two playoffs, first against... Uh, Syria uh, in Asia and then Honduras from uh, CONCACAF. Uh, the report said that he would leave regardless of whether the soccer is qualified and that and the, FF, the FFA and Ange Postacoli refused to sort of acknowledge this report to say whether it was right um, or even to say that it was wrong. So there was plenty of, of debate in the media over whether or not this would happen. Um, and for the record, I was firmly in the camp hoping that he would stay. Um, but really... If I'm honest, there was probably 30 or 40%, maybe even 50-50, the Australian footballing public uh, was split on whether they wanted him to go or not. Um, we ended up beating Honduras thanks to a second-leg melee Yedinak hat-trick, uh, deflected for a kick and two penalties. Uh, so Australia's passage to the World Cup was confirmed. And a week later, Ange held a press conference and announced that he would be stepping down. He didn't cite a specific reason, uh, which led to a whole spate of rumours, speculation he quit due to media pressure, which I don't really buy into because he's been in football for a long time and he knows what the media is like. Uh, And there was another rumour that he had a club club gig lined up 
um, which also I'm not too sure about because he hasn't really seriously been linked anywhere yet. Um, if he was to go into club management, it's most likely that it would be in Europe. Um, as for who replaces him, well, at the moment, there is another major issue in Australian football, and that surrounds the FFA, which is set to be taken over taken over by a FIFA normalisation committee due to uh, a long-held political disagreements among the voting members of the FFA. Uh, it's pretty embarrassing, really, for the powers of be. Even worse, our bid for the, 2020, the 2023 Women's World Cup is in jeopardy. And there's even uh, talk that our place in next year's World Cup could come into question into question due to uh, potential government interference. Um, so that's concerning. It's very unlikely at this stage, but uh, the fact that FIFA was is coming in to take over the FFA uh, is is on the cards. Um, so there's a very real possibility that Australia won't know who the coach for the World Cup is until February or even later, which is which is far from ideal. Um, and as for who as for who is going to be the coach, the debate now t- the surrounding the soccer's coaching position, um, and it's always been this has been whether to be a local coach or a foreign coach. This is practice. This is pretty much a debate had in pretty much every nation around the world. My belief is it should be a local unless it's someone with real pedigree, uh, say a Gus uh, Gus Hiddink, who was in charge in two thousand and six when we qualified for the the knockout stages. I wouldn't be against this move. He's currently out. He's he's. I'm pretty sure he's retired, but I'm sure, you know, he might be coerced into coming back and helping us out again. There's other other foreign candidates include Carlo Ancelotti, which I, I can't see that happening. Surely, uh, I think he's the Italy job might be um might be more enticing for him. So that's Dreamland, really. Uh, Bielsa's been linked, which you know his his track record as an actual coach rather than sort of, you know, a theorist is, is debatable. Um, and Jürgen Klinsmann, in, and you were saying earlier uh, off the record that um, that's been a name that's been, that's come up in the American media. Yeah. I have seen a few, a few links, um, but I don't think um, that is very likely because um, I'm pretty sure as, as I mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, if we go with a foreign option, it's going to be someone with pedigree. And I think the FFA, who, as I mentioned earlier, might not be the ones making this decision, uh, will be looking for uh, someone with a bit more um, pedigree. Like Klinsman's a a a well known name, but unfortunately for well, unfortunately for him, is the whether it's it's a well respected name in football. The as, at least as a coach is um, is questionable. The favourite to get the job is a man by the name of Graham Arnold. Uh, he coaches Sydney FC, uh, who currently hold all three pieces of silverware in Australian football. He was in charge for a short spell about a decade ago, but his style is really pragmatic, which is basically the total opposite of Postacoglu. Um, so while his track record is solid, it would be a really serious change with potentially only one or two friendlies before the uh, tournament kicks off. Other local nominations include Tony Popovich and Kevin Musket, two players that had spent time playing in England football, English football rather. Uh, Popper, he's currently struggling uh, in Turkey. Um, 
while Musket's currently struggling with Melbourne Victory, who are arguably the biggest club in Australia. So, uh, other than Graham R, there isn't many um, many local coaches that that are that are too that garner too much hope. And and to be honest, the best candidate for the job is is still Ange Postecoglou. Yeah, we'll definitely be interesting to see how that <laughs> works out. As you say, it could be a long time before we actually know who will be managing Australia at next year's World Cup. Uh, Jake, talking about Newcastle now, um, after starting every match up until last week, all of a sudden, Rob Elliott out as the starting goalkeeper. Uh, what do you think led to that decision from uh, Rafa Benitez? Um. I just don't think he's very good. <laughs> no, I just it's not. It's something he's done quite a few times since he's took over as manager. But he has, he changed our manager very quickly last season with Matt Sales, who sort of bought in for quite a big fee, and then sort of got shit, didn't look great, and was was given a chance for over sort of a 10, 11 game stretch, then got got changed. And it's obviously the same as this time with Rob Elliott. He's been given a chance. He's didn't want to chop and change him too early. He's given him the first sort of 10, 11 games, saying you're my number one prove you should be it and he hasn't done that he's never really looked confident he's never really made a save that you think oh that save kept us in it he's just been very sort of just average and Cole Darlow as much as he's a bit of a he, he makes mistakes and there's a few very famous sort of Twitter vines that was sort of did the rounds more in the championship of him making some ridiculous mistakes but on the whole he, he does really good saves and over the course of last season he probably saved the small points that he let let up so I think he, and he's one that's probably got the most potential out of all the keepers we own. So I'm, I'm quite happy for him to be given the chance. I think even Eden Hazard, I, I've not seen the article, but I saw something floating around on uh, social media with Eden Hazard praising Cole Darlow for something. I, I'm not, I haven't read it, but I mean, it, I might have completely made that up, but I think I saw something about it. So that an interesting thing to maybe look into. I probably should have done that before I came in here. But yeah, I think he's a good keeper. I think he's fine. He was being on the England radar for a little bit as well, uh, at least last season, uh, on the very fringes of the England radar, but he was on there and mentioned by some. So yeah, I think he's he's, he's good enough and I'm happy to be given a shot in the first team. We have we needed something to change. And uh, I mean, it. we haven't really had any results to, to, to write home about recently. So we'll give this one a go. So it's just kind of like a, oh, we'll see what happens kind of solution. Uh, I did what? see uh, a Tottenham supporter saying, uh, why don't we loan uh, you or somebody else, Paulo Gazaniga? Would that interest you at all? Or would that just be like another mediocre goalkeeper with long-term potential? Yeah, I don't know if I'm really that interested in that. I'd be interested in Michel Vorm. <laughs> I don't think I'd be interested in Paulo Gazaniga, who, when I saw him at Southampton, was pretty average. And one good game for Tottenham doesn't make a career. So, yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I think but we want to sign a new keeper. It's one of the priorities over the summer, and it didn't get done, probably because of the takeover stuff. And Mike Ashley is very cost-efficient and doesn't want to spend for needless reasons. But I think we'll probably have a new keeper quick sooner rather than later. Interesting stuff. Also, Dwight Gale did get the goal when uh, you got promoted. You mentioned that you definitely you would definitely need to improve your forward ranks. We thought that had happened with Joselu. Now a little bit question mark about that. Do you think it's time Gale gets given that chance, kind of longer term? Um, no, <laughs> I, I, I don't really. <laughs> no, I don't. I, I think it's. I think Mitrovic should be given a go, and I, I think it's. He's the only one. He's the only one in our squad. Who, he's, 
Jossie Lee's very good at holding the ball and links up the game well, and he does a lot of stuff off the ball, pressing and that sort of stuff well, but he has absolutely no goal threat. And the two goals he scored, one was a tap-in and one bounced off his shin. I, like, neither of them really count in my eyes as, as being a good striker's goal. So he has absolutely no goal threat. And then with Dwight Gale, he, he's a good finisher, but he doesn't really do a lot else. And it, it's, he's, I think every game he started the season, we've lost. So, yeah, that's, I, I'm not that interested in seeing him. Be given a, a long-term shot. I think he's better off the bench. I think Mitrovic has got. A, he's he's an absolute. Yeah, he he is an. He is a. Yeah, I, I don't know the word to use, but he he's quite something special. He's there's reasons why he doesn't play. He's a bit of an idiot. He's all of this, but he's still only 23. He's got so much potential. He can hold up the ball, and when he's motivated, he looks really. really he he he's our best striker by far, and he's got a goal threat. I just think he needs to be given a chance against West Brom when he came off the bench. He may not have scored, but he changed the game. Things he did, open space up for others. He, he contributed uh, in the build-up as well, and I just think I just think he just deserves to be given a shot. There's a lot of uh, reports saying he's unhappy and he's looking to move back, and and his two former clubs have both been linked as possible loan moves. But I just think if yeah, I'm quite happy for him to leave if Rafa doesn't want him. But for this next month, we need to, something to change before the transfer window. And we should just give him this month, say, you're our starter strike for this month. Prove why you should be starting for us. If he doesn't do it, fine, let him go. But I think he deserves a shot. And I think, honestly, he's probably our best option there. Hmm. Uh, well, if there are question marks up front and there are question marks in goal, uh, are those going to be addressed? Or do you think you're just kind of riding out and hoping to be at least 17th? Um, yeah, right now, that's probably it. <laughs> I, I think it's, I'm not too down considering we have, we've only won once in September. I think there's a lot of factors that have gone into that. Um, if our defense was very good until Jamal LaSales went off injured, he went off when it was nil nil against Bournemouth. Since then, I think we've conceded 13 goals and we scored like four. So, and before that we'd conceded 10 in like the previous 10 matches or so, so yeah it's it's a massive difference how how big of an effect it has been losing our captain and i think this, the quicker he comes back the better for us and i think when he does come back we'll be a better team we've got some good players we'll we'll clear, we'll be fine i think i'm not too worried the, the fact that when, when we started this um run we were i think it was seven points off the relegation zone and now after losing all these games and not picking up any points we're only five points off the relegation zone like the teams below below us are not really making up that ground. I don't think we're one of the. I think there's going to be three worse teams than us. I, I just think we'll be fine. We, I think it's just we we are suffering for a lack of investment. We're suffering for, um, yeah, mainly a lack of investment. But that's not the only excuse. We Rafa Benitez is not completely absolved of any blame because we didn't get money invested in him. I think you should maybe have done better with some of these matches. But we're a newly promoted club. We we've doing fine we went on a bit of a, we're on a bit of a bad run but most teams will go through that we've got two massive home games now against uh Leicester and Everton and I think I would be surprised if we didn't win at least one of those I I would be surprised I think it can't keep going on forever Benitez is too good a coach to keep losing matches he's he's working with a very limited squad and I think that's a lot of re- the reason for maybe the negativity at times but he's I can't see it keep keep going on for long, and the takeover stuff is still going on. And nobody really knows what's going on with that. But I think, regardless of takeover, we need to get to January. And I think Mike Ashley's he's too smart of a business person to let us go down again, especially if he wants to sell the club. He he will have to invest a little bit of money, even if it's what sort of the next payment of Premier League TV money, which I think is due around at the end of December. If we just spend that on the team, bring in a couple of decent players, I think we'll be fine. 
Yeah, you sort of just you sort of just mentioned the takeover. Do you do you have any other any any other thoughts on that? And do you think that that could potentially influence how Newcastle and Rafa Benitez approach the uh, transfer window? Um, definitely, I de- definitely think that. I think there's I I know for a fact that there's players that are being looked at for for a take it. If we got taken over, there's players that are on our radar. And if we don't get taken over, there's players we're looking at as well. I think there's very there's a difference in price, as you'd expect. I don't think that the people, at least the the, the favourites, the 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 um, you know, the company that are looking to take over Newcastle, the ones that have been heavily rumoured in the press, uh, Amanda Stavely, I think they made a bid. Um, they've got links to uh, Arab money, but I'm not sure if they uh, would use it. I, I don't know how much it is. I think they're involved in the um, Man City takeover, but I, I, I think, yeah, I think I don't think it's going to happen before January. So I think we're just going to have to get a couple of average to decent players in and just hope go from there. I think I think the takeover stuff is going to is going to carry on to the end of the season. I think it's I, I'm right now I'm pretty confident it will get done. It the noises sound a lot different to when he was trying to sell before and didn't really have an interest. I think he does have a genuine interest to sell it, and it's just it it, it takes time. And I think it's. Yeah, and and the stuff with the 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 tax. I think there's some tax problem we have, or at least the HMRC raids and stuff like that, are probably not helping helping the takeover go any quicker. And the the differentials in price, but yeah, I, I think it will happen. I, and I don't think it will happen before January. I think we're just gonna have to hope that Mike Ashley isn't an idiot and and protects his own investment because he'd have to be an, an idiot not to invest in this squad uh, in January. Right now we're going to head into Player Watch where we're going to talk about the player that is most crucial to you reaching your goals, uh, both in the Premier League and uh, your country at the World Cup. Uh, Thomas, we'll lead in with you, starting with Liverpool. What what do you think your targets are for this season for your club? And who do you think is the most important player in getting you there? Knowing that earlier we talked about how the benefit of Liverpool squad this season is there isn't just one guy to rely on. Yeah. Well, the, the squad goals should definitely be to be one of the top four teams. I don't think that we have to be at the top two or there are no way that we can compete with Manchester City to win the league. So if we finish the league at fourth place, I'm, I would be very satisfied. And if you look at the Champions League, we should definitely be to the next round. And uh, once we're through, then uh, it depends a lot on which teams we face because if we get a... If we get Barcelona or Real Madrid, it of course would be very hard to go to the next round. But uh, uh, if we not get that good team, then maybe maybe we have a shot to get the quarterfinals. And once we're there, everything can happen. So um, at least top four place in the in the Premier League is the main objective, the way I see it. And uh, the most important player we touched on earlier, but I think it's Roberto Firmino because he brings something to the team that. Salah and Mania doesn't do. So um, I would say that he's the most important player. Before the season, I, I thought it would be Joel Matip, but um, I, don't, I haven't been very impressed with him now. And uh, He's out injured and uh, our defense is, uh, it is a problem. And he hasn't been as good as I hoped. So um, maybe our most important player will come in this January, hopefully. Yeah, and for Sweden? For Sweden, it's um, as I said earlier, it's Sweden is a team now more than uh, built around players. But uh, the most important player is our captain, Andreas Granqvist, central defender. 
Uh, a lot of people talk about Victor Nilsson Lindelöf and, and they should. He's in Manchester United and uh, he's young and talented. But Andreas Granqvist is the main man in Sweden. He plays in uh, Krasnodar in uh, Russia. Not the most fancy team, but uh, he's very popular there. And in Sweden, he is, uh, he's almost like a god now after the games against Italy where he was practically everywhere on the field. So uh, we need him to be at, the be- at his best in the World Cup. And if, if we want to score goals, we need Emil Forsberg, of course. He is the, he's the main man going forward. The, the attackers aren't, aren't that good that they can score on their own. They need Emil Forsberg to deliver the balls into the, into the, before the goal. So I would say Andreas Granqvist and Emil Forsberg really need to be at their best if we want to go to the next round in the World Cup. Well, it's still got to be uh, to win the title. We're what? We're eight points off uh, after a few uh, late Manchester City wins. They have been uh, have been spectacular. There is no getting around that. But Manchester United still have the potential to make a real title challenge. A win against Manchester City next weekend will be a, a huge step in in that process. The big concern um, is that we'll be without Paul Pogba. For that match, and I believe the two ma- two matches after that, um, and obviously while he was while he was injured, Manchester United's form seriously dipped. He's the most expensive player in the league, so it's understandable that uh, the side relies heavily on him. But I think it's been used as an excuse for a lot of the players to, oh, Pogba isn't playing, so you know it's okay for Lukaku to not be as not be at his very best or Mkhitaryan or or whoever, which I think is a, a bit of a cop-out when all these players are expensive players in their own right. Um, with that, and despite Jose seemingly saying otherwise, uh, Dave De Gea, after his performance against Arsenal, is probably our most important player heading into this match. 14 saves against the Gunners, uh, and I'm pretty sure that's a Premier League record. For mine, he's undoubtedly the... Uh, the best keeper in the league and he's top three in the world in, in, in my opinion. And he might uh, break that um, 13 saves record against City next week. All right. And for Australia, are you looking at this uh, group C and thinking you have a good shot of advancing? Well, we're definitely the outsiders in the group um, considering our, our three opponents are ranked ninth, 11th and 12th while we're, we're 35th, 34th. Or maybe higher between thirty fifth and and fortieth. Probably should know that off the top of my head, but you know. Anyway, um, but considering we've had we had Chile, the Netherlands, and um, Spain in the last World Cup, we'll definitely take this group. France is obviously the 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 big fish in this group. Uh, however, we we've they've been known to slip up. E.g., Lloris against Sweden, um, the side against Luxembourg. So. While there's plenty of talent, I can see Australia, if they're really on their game, getting something out of that that first match, which is in Kazan, which is actually the the city that Australia's Australia Australia will be based in, which is is I believe a positive considering the amount of distance a lot of sides will have to travel in this tournament. Um, Denmark, obviously. Christian Eriksen is the star player in that side, but they have a few other quality players. I'm, I'm being pr- pretty impressed with Thomas Delaney um, in the Bundesliga. And 
but the the squad itself in their playoff they they came second in a fairly average group in my opinion in European qualifying and I didn't watch the the five one defeat of uh, the the Republic of Ireland in the second leg but I watched most of the first leg which finished nil all and you know it's Republic of Ireland are not a good side so I was pretty disappointed considering Denmark were the home side in that leg um, so while they while they're eleventh or twelfth in the world Peru is. 11th or you get what I'm trying to say. Um, um, one of them 11th and one of them are 12th. Um, Denmark are, are beatable, and that's probably going to be the key the key match in this group to de- determine who finishes second. Peru, fifth in, in the uh, South American qualifying. They finished ahead of Chile, who are obviously the two-time, Copper America, two-time back-to-back Copper America uh, winners, so they might they have pedigree in some sense. Um, Andre Carrillo is a very very good player up front for him, so is Jefferson Farfan. Um, but they struggled past New Zealand in the uh, intercontinental playoff uh, nil all in Wellington, I believe that that, that match was played, and then in Lima finished two nil to Peru. And like I said, New Zealand are not a good side. I believe Australia uh, a step up from that, so I think we can really get. That's a that's a must win for Australia, and I believe that's the last match. So, yeah. look, I can see I can realistically see us get, getting four points out of this group, and it may it may come down to um, the result against France, whether we can get a better result against France than mm-hmm. the uh, than Denmark. Uh, and if there was a player that you'd highlight in particular for Australia, I mean, from an outside perspective, it seems like it would have to be Moy. Well, the thing is, Aaron Moy, he, he's currently the Australian playing at the highest level. However, unfortunately, in in this in World Cup qualifying, he hasn't performed as well as he has for Huddersfield, which there's no doubting his talent. Um, for someone so slow, the the ability he has to control the game is incredible. And and, and you've got to you've got to be technically fantastic and uh, to cut it if you're as slow as Aaron Moy and the pasty Pilo as he's known down here, he's he's definitely an important player and we hope he steps up. But the player that, that I'd like to sort of signal and is crucial to this it, crucial to Australia qualifying for the knockout phase is Tommy Yurich. Um he's our striker. He's replacing Tim Cahill, who will be thirty eight by the time that World Cup comes around. He'll probably be in the squad, Tim Cahill, but he shouldn't be starting. Um he isn't our best player, but he is going to be our main striker. He's a big lump of lad. He plays for Luzerne in Switzerland, uh, but he lacks a bit, lacks that cutting edge. And if Australia are to get out of the group, we need our main striker to be putting the ball in the back of the net. So, so I, I feel who's going to be the real key for us getting through to the next round. All right, and Jake, who has been uh, best for Newcastle this season, and do you think uh, they're good enough to kind of carry you to safety this year? Uh, well, a few weeks ago, I'd have said Mick and Marino. I thought he's been really good this season and everything that he did. And I thought he was sort of the centerpiece to our team. But recent results have sort of shown me that it's not him. <laughs> and it's more Jamal LaSalle that is massive for, to us. We've Our defence is an absolute shambles about him. They just don't look the same. They don't look like the same group of players. And it's really weird that one, that one, one player... Uh, and sort of the captain can have that much of an influence. I thought the, the captains haven't that much influence on the team. are sort of pass now, and it's sort of the managers to have that power. But he seems so so important to us. And 
if you had told me this at the start of the season, I would I would have laughed at you. A lot of people thought he was our fourth choice, uh, he was our fourth best centre back, and I wouldn't have gone that far. But I thought there's a lot of question marks about his ability to step up and play in the Premier League. But he's been excellent, and I, I think he's he's probably he's easily our most important player. And the sooner he comes back, the better. I think that when he comes back, we'll concede a lot fewer. Uh, and when you're conceding fewer, the attack have more freedom and sort of license and belief that we can get results whereas at the moment we need them to score three and four goals every game which just isn't going to happen we don't have those players and so I think the return of Lascelles is is important both in a defensive and a leadership aspect definitely he's he's our most important player all right and Jake for England who do you think is going to be most important I assume that uh while you were being jokingly pessimistic earlier that by the time the tournament rolls around England will be looking at this group and thinking maybe we could win the whole dang thing I go, I go into every tournament thinking we're going to win the whole damn thing. <laughs> every, when it gets to when it's about a month before the tournament, when, once 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 the Premier League is out of the way, I'll be thinking England are going to win the World Cup, and no one's going to be able to sway me from that point of view. The group is really nice as well, and I think we we should have fingers crossed. We should have no problems getting through that group. But this is England, so you never know. But in terms of personnel. It's difficult. I think we we've not really had a settled team. I know we sort of switch into this three four two one, and and it's has been encouraging signs. I think in the last two friendlies, I think they were encouraging signs. We were against uh, Brazil and Germany, you know, two of the best teams in the world, and we could have won either game. I know we could have easily lost them, but we we held our own and we looked. It wasn't embarrassing, especially the amount of players we had missing, which you have to take into uh, account. You know, um, Kane wasn't playing, Sterling wasn't playing. We had quite a number of other players out. So if you bring those those guys back in, I think we've got a really good chance. I think the English players in the Premier League are really benefiting from the coaching that they're getting. And hopefully that will translate onto the international stage. Um, I think it's, it's, I mean, if this isn't Noman, I don't know what it is. It, it, I think Guardiola was working in, Spain when they won the World Cup and then he was working in Germany they won the World Cup and now it's the next World Cup and he's working in England so yeah I think I can see it happening <laughs> all the work players he's working with uh, John Stones uh, Raheem Stone you know they, they're all doing really well. but the one player I think is important to England and I, he always comes off looking really good a lot better than he does for his club team which is really odd but Adam Lallana I think he's really mm. important for for England he always the runs he makes the, the work rate uh, his link up play of the attacks and because he's not like the biggest name the focus isn't on him and I think a lot of what he does goes unnoticed but he, he's so important to us and, and the sooner he gets back playing for Liverpool regularly and get, get a minute under his belt ahead of the, some of the better I think he's one of the first names on the team sheet he's not that exciting but he, he's in an international scene, in an international sort of uh, arena against against those little clubs, where, uh, against those teams where we're not expected to to we're not we're not going to go into many games as favourites against the bigger teams. We have to be playing those players that can work hard and, and do a job off the ball and are disciplined. We can't always be you know just picking those that play for the top teams because I think that's a mistake we've made in the past. We've been picking players based on you know who, what clubs they play for, but like if we're going against Germany or Brazil. I want a centre back that defends a lot, as opposed to one that mm. plays for Tottenham maybe and doesn't get a lot. Who doesn't have to do a lot of work defensively, or as much as the smaller clubs like put Michael Keane in there or uh, Harry Maguire, who are doing a lot more defensive work. I'd much rather have those players in because they're used to doing the job that they'll have to do in that game. If that makes Interesting. sense. Interesting. Yeah. It, so I think Adam Lallana fits into that perfectly. I think you can you can blend him in with Sterling and Kane in the attack and Ali as well. But I think he does so much work off the ball that he's so important and I. I think he's probably England's most important player. Hmm. All right, well, that'll just about do it for us today. So if you guys have any projects you'd like to plug or want to tell people where they could reach you, now would be a good time. 
Yeah, I'm, uh, I've been Thomas Nygren from LFC.se. LFCSV.se. You can find our webpage at that address and you can find me on Twitter at Thomas Nygren. Uh, as I've said recently, previously when I've been on this show, that it's in Swedish, but you all know Google Translate and there are a lot of good pictures on the site as well. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure. You can find me on Twitter at Dylan Arvella. Yeah, you can get me on Twitter at Jake Chappell with two N's oh, for EPL Index and the Boot Room. And I'm hopefully throwing out some more interviews for the Boot Room. Uh, I did one with Bobby Reed a few weeks ago, and we're hopefully to get a few more of those sort of pieces up in the next few weeks. So keep an eye out for those. Yeah, and I'm your host, Kevin DeVries. You can find me on Twitter at Kevroff, and you can find most of my fantasy writings over at Goal.com under the Gaming tab. Uh, thank you guys so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure as always, and we hope you keep listening.